0: Reflections on Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman by Gil Bailey. Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 2. Let's just start with Act 2. It's the morning when Biff, Willie Loman's older son, after a number of years of knocking around to know a professional Consequence, is going to see his old employer, Bill Oliver, to ask him to for financial backing for a plan that Biff and his younger brother, Happy, have concocted for a, an economic uh, venture in Florida. And Willie is intimately attached to Biff, as we found out looking at Act One. Willie has uh, what, what we might almost call psychologically a transference onto his son, Biff. Biff is, for him, the son. In the sky the star the pole star and so as biff's life looks like it may be having a new beginning willie is experiencing a new beginning now coincidentally of course not coincidentally to the to the author uh, willie is off to see his boss this very same day howard wagner uh, is willie's boss and willie is going to go see him and ask him uh, for a New York job so he doesn't have to travel because he's not able to drive as well as he used to be and uh, it's wearing him out and uh, it turns out before long we find out that Willie also needs an advance so he has to ha- ask Howard for an advance so biff and willie begin in act 2 to go off to get a new start both are looking for a new start and willie is is effervescent about the possibility of the, of a new start willie's whatever his many faults willie is capable of great bursts of optimism whether or not they're realistic is another question but hope springs eternal in Willie, and he's uh, he's hopeful at the point of being almost giddy at the beginning of act two at the end of act one when he counseled biff about how to approach this interview with his old employer bill oliver he said among other things don't say the word g g is a boy's word it's not going to extend financing to somebody who says g and, and in this case, as in others, Willie's always talking to himself. You have a sense that that's exactly the that Willie has walked out of interviews in the past thinking to himself, why did I say G when I shouldn't have? Because it's a boy's word. Well, uh, we remember that. We're, I'm sure, supposed to remember it as Willie sits at the breakfast table and says uh, to Linda, his wife, Gee, on the way home tonight, I'd like to buy some seed very feeling very good you say new life and the two words at the beginning and end of that sentence are key to it g meaning a boy's word meaning new life meaning enthusiasm and seeds i'll get some seeds and put them in the ground now willie as we know ha- goes on a kind of roller coaster emotional ride peaks and troughs peaks and troughs i don't know much, if anything, about the psychological or psychiatric problem called manic depression. And I, I don't want to psychologize uh, this fictional character, after all. Uh, but it's, it gives us an opportunity to think about something, and that is that manic depression offers a symbol for, now I'm not saying it's, I'm not diagnosing manic depression, understand, it's like Carl Jung says, uh, neurosis is a substitute for legitimate suffering. Uh, What manic depression does is offer us a symbol for a spiritual problem. And the spiritual problem, I think, is what happens when, for whatever reason, we enter into that region of life in which the paradoxes reign, while at the same time resisting paradox. The region of life where paradox reigns is the region of life which the tradition tells us, where we begin to understand you have to lose your life in order to find it, that the that the first will be last, and the last first, and so on. Someone who enters that region, unequipped to appreciate paradox, will almost inevitably have to bounce from one to the other of these poles. So the person would experience that he is first, and then... In sequence, that he is last, and then again that he is first, instead of them being paradoxically bound, or experience that he, he or she is losing uh, his or her life, or now gaining it, and so on. So there's a kind of roller coaster ride which could be attributed to the inability to experience the paradox. Well, I mentioned it in passing. It's one of these things that we have an opportunity to explore with this text. Willie is. At now, on the peak, but Linda, who spent her life with Willie, uh, has seen it all before, and so she immediately, as people who spend their lives with others who go through the peaks and troughs tend to do, she instantly knows that that peak is a very dangerous place it 's the crest of the the surfer on the crest of the wave, you see, and she begins to walk on eggshells because she knows how fragile that is, so uh, in a sense. Linda has adapted to Willie's fluctuations, so that when this happens, she begins automatically to prepare a soft landing, you see. Very gently, when he says, uh, gee, on the way home tonight, I think I'll stop by and get some seeds, Linda says, that'd be wonderful. But not enough sun gets back there. Nothing will grow anymore, just gently reminding him so it won't be such a hard bump, you see. Prepare a soft landing, and then Linda hands Willie his jacket and says, "I sewed the lining again, the Penelope action, you know uh, quietly mending the the coat that he has to wear into the world from the inside. It's a bu- beautiful image of the woman uh, in a sense taking care of this man who's far more vulnerable than he realizes, but she realizes it Linda is what is sometimes called the codependent, which is not fair to her and not fair to most people that it's applied to, probably. But it gives us some, we we can sense something about that. But she is a codependent in this sense, and that is she recognizes how fragile his mythology is and recognizes also that he has nothing else but that mythology. The, the, the myth may change. It may be inflected in different ways, nuanced in different ways, different features, but she understands that that's all he has to go on, and she senses she must go along with it or else he will utterly crash and disintegrate. So she kind of keeps the keeps the myth alive for his sake, though so she understands it. She sees through it. The, the indication in the text is, is that, I think. And so she consents or conspires to join in the mythology while at the same time preparing for the soft landing. So there is a, a kind of, a, a kind of a conspiracy of fabrication that goes on for Willie's sake. Uh, I once heard some years ago this term, which is, I, I can't tell you how, how beneficial it has been to me, this term, the tyranny of the touchy the tyranny of the touchy. We we, we t- generally don't think of uh, the touchy or the vulnerable or the fragile ones as being tyrants. Uh, but they are sometimes unconsciously and sometimes semi-consciously uh, so that uh, those in their vicinity realize how fragile their situation is and uh, and so begin to surround them with uh, fabrications, with reinforcements that are not really real, with with kind of little encouragements and and noddings, and yes, indeed, and so on and so forth, uh, all of which contributes to what Scott Peck called the people of the lie. Um, so Willie is, uh, presents this kind of problem to those around him, and his family has accommodated largely by going along with his mythology, at least when they're in his presence. Well, he is uh, he's feeling new life, but all the more so when he finds out that his two boys, Hap and Biff, want him to join them for dinner that night at a restaurant. And this little gesture of courteousness and affection touches Willie deeply. He he loves his, his boys and his wife very much. And he's so touched by that that as soon as he hears of that little gesture of love, his spirits, already ebullient, soar. He says now, not just gee, but gee whiz. Gee whiz, that's really something. I'm going to knock Howard for a loop, kid. I'll get an advance and I'll come home with a New York job. God damn it, now I'm going to do it. You see? So this is the day, this is a day maybe even more than others, where Willie has. Is, is, is on a roll. He's, he's at the top of the cycle. He's at the peak of the peaks and troughs. And as he leaves, he says to Linda, maybe beets would grow out there. And she, again, preparing for the gentle bump, says, but you tried so many times. And he leaves. On the telephone, Biff and Willie's Wife, Linda, talk, and Linda says to Biff, Be loving to him, because he's only a little boat looking for a harbor. You'll save his life. Just put your arm around him when he comes into the restaurant. So she understands what his needs are, and she understands how fragile he is, and she's essentially telling her sons how to take care of that fragility. I want to spend a little time on the interview that Willie has with his employer, Howard Wagner, because it's a kind of a play within the play. With some variations, uh, Howard Wagner is a kind of Willie Loman with a six-figure income. That's, a, that's after you factor in inflation from the time this play was written. Uh, uh, not exactly. There's some differences. Uh, But you can see that Howard Wagner, you can see something that we find out at the very end of the play. At the end of the play, Around the Grave, uh, it's just Willie's wife and the two boys and Charlie, the next-door neighbor. And Linda his wife says all he needed was a little salary. And Charlie says nobody needs just a little salary. In other words, Willie's problem is not an economic problem and never has been. The fact that he is having economic difficulties allows him to center around that as the symptom of his problem, but that's not his problem. And we know that already because Happy has told us about his boss, who's a $52,000 a year merchandise manager, who builds an estate in Long Island and lives there two months and sells it to go do something else because he doesn't have enough peace of mind to stay where he's put. And likewise with Howard Wagner, we get another symptom of the same disease. First of all, Howard is 36 years old, which is to say two years older than Willie's son, Biff, and a good deal younger than Willie himself. Willie's 63. Willie was hired originally by Howard's father, and and Willie had, at least uh, in his own mind, he thinks he had something to do with Howard's uh, being named Howard. So Willie shows up. And Howard is in his office, monkeying around with a tape record, brand new tape recording machine. This plays circa 1950, so you, we might have to substitute other technological devices in order to play it into our uh, contemporary scene. But, uh, it, but w- with that exception, it plays perfectly well. Uh, Willie comes in, and uh, uh, Howard is completely preoccupied with the tape recording machine. Willie. Tries to make some entree a little bit, doesn't work. Howard says, This first one is my daughter, and he switches on the machine. He says, Get this. And she's whistling. And uh, Howard says, Listen to that kid whistle. Seven years old. Get that tone, Howard says. Get that tone. Now the question is, is he, is he talking about his, his daughter or the tape recording machine when he says tone? Well, they've blended. They've blended. And then Willie says, I have a little favor, and so on. Uh, but Howard hardly listens. His daughter's voice comes on, now you, Dad. And Howard says, she's crazy for me. Now, get this, he says, this is my son. And his son's voice comes on, the capital of Alabama is Montgomery, the capital of so-and-so is so-and-so, and he's reciting the capital. And Howard holds up five fingers and says, five years old, Willie. And Willie says he'll make a great announcer someday. Now, this is just a tiny echo of what happened in Act One when we found out that Willie hawked the symbol of the transference, that's the way we read it at the end of Act One, which is the diamond watch fob that his brother Ben had given him. He hawked it in order to send Biff to Radio Correspondence School. And so here's a five-year-old boy. So you see what what's part of what's going through Willie's head is a constant comparison of himself and his family with others. And now he hears a five-year-old's voice coming across this on this tape recorder, and he says he'll make a, an announcer someday. Just a little echo of this constant comparing himself and his family to others. And then, of course, Howard's wife comes on. He, Howard says, wait a minute this next is my wife and Howard's voice comes on go on say something now you see we're, we're, he says this is my wife coming up so all of us are have our ears perked we want to hear what his wife is saying and the words we hear are go on say something not his wife's voice but his voice this is my wife go on say something now Willie Lohman isn't as consciously, I don't know that we could use the word consciously about Howard Wagner, but he isn't even as conscious as Howard is of manipulating his family into speaking what he wants them to speak. But Willie is doing it anyway. It's the tyranny of the touchy. Willie does it in another way, and we'll get to that later on. So here's my wife's voice. Go on, say something. A pause, nothing is said. Well, you're going to talk? And his wife's voice, I can't think of anything. Well, talk, it's turning. Talk, it's turning. The tape recorder says it's turning. Talk. Now, among other things here, there is this terrible conflation of technology and human relationships. His wife finally says, hello, followed by a pause. Oh, Howard, I can't talk into this. And he snaps the machine off and says, that's my wife. Well, nobody would, would make a happy prognosis of that family environment from that scene. And that's the scene that, that, that Arthur Miller has given us. But it's a parable of Willie's life, using different metaphors and uh, different socioeconomic situations and so on. And then Howard says, I tell you, Willie, I'm going to take my camera and my bandsaw and all my hobbies and out they go. This is the most fascinating relaxation I ever found. Now, the great character that portrays this sensibility is Toad in Wind in the Willows. (laughs) But whatever the new thing is, you see, oh, this is it. This is it. It's it's another way. It's it's the kind of uh, slippage of the transference in a gadget-filled environment uh, that happens all the time without us realizing. So Howard says, supposing you want to hear Jack Benny, but you can't be at home at that hour. You tell your maid to turn on the radio when Jack Benny comes on. Now he's talking to Willie Loman, who can't pay his bills, who's there trying to get an advance so he can pay his insurance premium. Um, so, And when you turn on the radio, this thing comes on automatically. And then Howard says... You can come home, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, anytime you like, and get yourself a Coke and sit yourself down, throw the switch, and there's Jack Benny's program in the middle of the night. This is worthy of... Uh, some, sometimes there are parts of this that remind me of Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor's a little more grotesque in the way she writes, uh, but c- clearly we're talking about somebody who's coming home 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, get yourself a Coke, and... do something that will make you laugh in the middle of the night. See, a little hint of how bad things really are. That, of course, the speaker doesn't get at all. He thinks he's just found the panacea, when in fact he has just dug the hole a little bit deeper. But it's a parable about Willie Loman. And then Willie finds out that there is no job in New York, is soon to find out that he doesn't even have a job. His job, he was on commission. He's not even going to be on commission. He's having to be let go. Throughout, Howard Wagner calls Willie kid. Listen, kid, he says. That's the way it is, kid, and so on. But really important things come out when he says, as he does a couple of times, look, this is just business, kid. This is just business. And Willie finally gets angry, and I want to read Willie's little speech and then reflect on it a little bit. Business is definitely business, Willie says, but just listen for a minute. You don't understand this. When I was a boy, eighteen, nineteen, I was already on the road and there was a question in my mind as to whether selling had a future for me. Because in those days, I had a yearning to go to Alaska. See, there were three gold strikes in one month in Alaska, and I felt like going out, just for the ride, you might say. Now, just to pause here for a second, that's a cover-up. Everything in, uh, because of the cultural environment, everything in Willie's life has to be expressed in terms of its, its economic utility. And so he says, well, Alaska... Well, there had been some gold strikes up there, and I thought I'd go up there, you know, just to uh, adventurous spirit and so on. Thought I'd go and see if I could make, uh, you know, m- make my stake there. But we soon to find out why it is really wanted to go to Alaska. Uh, Howard says, don't say. Howard's not listening. Oh, yeah, my father lived many years in Alaska. He was an adventurous man. We've got quite a little streak of self-reliance in our family. I thought I'd go out with my brother and try to locate him. Maybe settle in the north with the old man. Now, why does he want to go to Alaska? Well, that's the reason he wants to go to Alaska. He's 1819, that's what he said. And the time has come for him to become, almost come, for him to become an adult male. And he needs some connection. He needs a, if you allow me to put it in these terms, uh, parabolically speaking, he needs a. He needs the sacrament of confirmation, and he longs to make this contact with his father, as a feature of that sacrament. So the time has come for him to find out. Eric Neumann, who who's a the student and uh, explicator of Carl Jung's work, had a wonderful phrase which he called the secondary personalization of the archetype. It's kind of a mouthful, but Jung spoke of the archetypal father, the archetypal mother, as these experiences that reside in the collective psyche. And that we have what, and then Neumann calls them, secondary personalization of the archetype. Uh, Our parents, or if not parents, some other figure in their stead, mediates this archetypal influence in our life. And if it isn't mediated, it may either not be there at all, or it may be in its purely archetypal form. In, in either case, it, it, it would be problematic. Okay. So we need, Norman argues, we need the secondary personalization of the archetype, the mediating, a, a person mediating the influence of the archetype. Archetypes are just one way of talking about the mystery, but it is it would be true of other archetypal constellations as well. In any case, Willie is talking about a moment when he was in need of that and was about to go to Alaska to try to satisfy the need. He goes on, I was almost decided to go when I met a salesman in the Parker house. His name was Dave Singleman. and he was 84 years old, and he drummed merchandise in 31 states, And old Dave, he'd go up to his room, you understand, put on his green velvet slippers, I'll never forget, and pick up his phone and call the buyer. And without ever leaving his room, at the age of 84, he made his living. And when I saw that, I realized that selling was the greatest career a man could want. it's perfectly clear what's happened. At this moment when he's longing for that connection, almost randomly, somebody comes into focus with all the right credentials, that is to say, age, uh, impressive person, uh, etc., etc., and the nickel drops, and Willie becomes a salesman. Without the tradition coming in to influence that critical moment it becomes much more random and what what's there is what's there and suddenly the connection is made like we said before you know it's the little duck coming out of the egg and and looking around the, the barnyard and the first thing it sees that's mama duck what did he see in this vision he says i realized that selling was the greatest career a man could want because what could be more satisfying than to be able to go at the age of 84 into 20 or 30 cities, pick up a phone, and be remembered and loved and helped by so many different people. Willie Loman never says a word about how rich Dave Singleman was. What impressed him was that he had friends, that he was well-liked, that he was remembered, loved, and helped by so many people. That's what he wants that's really what he wants, allowing for the ordinary problem of original sin that's that's not a bad desire and then he goes on, do you know when he died and by the way, he died the death of a salesman in his green velvet slippers in the smoker of the New York New Haven and Hartford going to Boston. When he died, hundreds of salesmen and buyers were at his funeral. Now part of this is the memory of that funeral. Now here must be a life well lived, to be so well mourned. So the payoff is, for a life like that, the payoff is the great crowd at the funeral as an acknowledgment that it was a life well lived. Before we go on, just to point out, there's two references to the green velvet slippers could not be accidental because there are two references and there must be some intention. I have no idea what it is, but I can tell you what it set off in me. First, we hearken back to Willie at the beginning of the play, Linda taking off his shoes and him saying, these goddamn arch supports are killing. Uh, for, For Willie, he has never been able to be at ease with his life in the world, Willie's life in the world of business and Willie's life at home when he is fixing the front porch stoop, he's never been able to put those two lives together. So to go out into the world is to put on these shoes with arch supports in them. And here we have someone who actually wears his green velvet slippers while doing his work. That is to say someone who is perfectly at home in his work, or at least that's how Willie sees it. Somebody who, whose life isn't separated like that. His name is Singleman. Okay. His na- name is Singleman. And he wears green velvet slippers. I don't suspect Arthur Miller of this, but in the high church, the cardinals, in their formal wear, wear red slippers. The symbolism is they must walk in the path of the blood of Christ. I don't know how many have pulled that off, but that's the symbolism. And here we have a kind of transcendent figure, you see, who's wearing green velvet slippers. And he's walking in the path of commerce. But it's still, he is, he's still a single man, and that is an impressive sight to see. We have been using and will be using in the future René Girard's terminology for trying to understand our situation. And Girard speaks of mimesis, which means imitative. And he says part of our pro- problem anthropologically is that, we are, that our desire is mimetic. We learn from others what to desire. And that because of that, our desire leads us inevitably into rivalry because having learned from somebody what to desire, we end up sooner or later in contest with them over it. Uh, so that's his beginning of his understanding of things. In any case, there will be mimesis. We are mimetic creatures. Mimesis is going to happen. The question is, at the critical moment in my life, will a visage pass before my eyes that is more reliable than Dave Singleman? Now the tradition tries to intersect that moment, that critical moment in our lives, with a visage that we can rely on. But with no access to that tradition, we just have to you just put your money down, take your chances. Willie shows up at Charlie's office. His next door neighbor has a business. Charlie has offered Willie a job a number of times. Willie won't take it out of pride. But he shows up to ask Charlie for a loan, and while he's there, he meets Uh, Bernard. And Bernard now is on his way to argue a case before the Supreme Court. And Willie is instantly, of course, aware of how Biff compares with Bernard. They were classmates together. And this adds to the painful uh, reality that's occurring to Willie that day. So Willie shows up uh, at the restaurant uh, to meet with Biff and Hap for dinner. Biff has gone to his interview with Bill Oliver and has been completely humiliated and realized some important things about his life that he had not realized before and has failed. And Willie has gone first to his employer and then to his next door neighbor for a loan and has come away humiliated by what he's had to do and by the realization that that Bernard is has his feet on the ground, and Biff does not, and all the rest of it. So Biff and Willie are coming to this restaurant after a day of defeat, happy less so. It's time now to really deal with the question. It's time now to to cut out the BS, get down to what's really what. And so they go to the right place. They go to a restaurant named Frank's Chop House. And it's the place of candor, you see, it's the place of frankness. It's the place where, if we were to, to think in terms of sacramental terms, it's the place where the sacrament of contrition, penance, reconciliation, truth-telling happens. It's wh- where one goes to be frank and to chop out the BS. This is where another is going to be another missed sacramental opportunity. Not entirely missed, but missed. What occurs at Frank's chop-out corresponds to the storm scene in Lear. It doesn't have the same spiritual consequence as the storm scene in Lear, unfortunately. But it's the same motif. It's where everything falls apart. It's where all of the arrogance and pomposity and pride and fabrication is to be exposed. Unfortunately, it isn't all exposed there. That's that's the, the tragedy of it or the sadness of it. Happy shows up uh, even less interested than others in actually being frank and candid. He he shows up blithely assuming that the lies can continue, even in Frank's chop house. And it turns out that the staff at Frank's chop house has itself become so acclimatized to the fabrication that the staff itself is perfectly willing to Accommodate to all of this, so Happy enters and talks to the waiter, whose name is Stanley, and he said, right away begins to lie about his brother Biff. He says, "Oh, Biff, he's a big cattleman out west." Now, Biff has a two-bit job on some farm out in Texas, uh, but Happy says he's a, he's a big cattleman out west, and he says he and Biff, uh, Happy says he and Biff might go into business together. And here's what Stanley says. Now, this is supposed to be Frank's Chop House, the place of candor, and Stanley says about them going into business together, that's best for you because a family business, you know what I mean, that's best. Because what's the difference? Somebody steals, it's in the family. You know what I mean. And then with a, lowers his voice and he says, like this bartender here. The boss is going crazy what kind of leak he's got in the cash register. You put it in, it don't come out. So this is just a parable for the kind of lying that's going on in Willie Loman's family right now. Willie Loman's family, it, all of the members of family are involved in keeping the lie current, keeping the fabrications going. And this Stanley just makes it clear. A family business is best because that way everybody has a winking acknowledgement of the fact that a scam is going on. It's a little, another little parable about Willie's life. A beautiful and lavishly dressed girl or young woman comes in and instantly happy goes into his routine and he starts to talk with her and it's it's an example a marvelous example of the little ways in which we conspire to lie with to one another it's as though the, between happy and this girl particularly it's as though let's see now what is it you want to hear okay let me say tell me what it is you want to hear and I'll tell you what it is I'll tell I'll say it to you and then I'll tell you what I want to hear and you say it to me, okay? So he says, Hap says to her, you ought to be on a magazine cover. She says, I have been. You see, this is an intriguing little side point here. What happens when somebody says, I have been on a magazine cover? Should I desire that person anymore because they've been on a magazine cover? No, but do I? Yes, why? Because the desired of others becomes more desirable. Happy says, uh, do you know anything about football? She says, no. He says, well, my brother Biff is the quarterback of the New York Giants. And I got my nickname Happy at West Point. There's a kind of slightly unconscious, but only barely so, conspiracy to spread whatever lie we need to make it all come out the way we want it. And so he says, I'm Happy. My name's Happy. I got the nickname at West Point. And she says, I'm Happy to meet you you're happy, I'm happy to meet you. See, it's kind of how to, tell me what lie you want to hear I'll tell it to you. It goes back and forth like that. Biff arrives and Biff is not interested in doing that. He's had a disastrous day at Bill Oliver's and he comes in spring-loaded to speak the truth. Happy introduces him to this girl, but Biff shows no interest in her whatsoever. He has an immunity to the mimetic desire that that Happy does not have. Even if Happy hadn't already told Biff how meaningless the little sexual games are, and and he has, Biff is the one who, when he was 18, and in need of some sort of sacramental confirmation, opened the door on a blubbering and disheveled father blinded to the true source of love in his life by the easy sexual favors and empty flatteries and sweet nothings being blown into his ear by someone he didn't even know. Even more than happy, then, Biff has wandered behind the glittering facade of mimetic desire and seen its shabby and embarrassing spiritual vacuity. Now, that doesn't mean that he'll resist it forever, but it means that he has a resistance to it that happy does not have. He has seen the tapestry from the other side, and the fabrication isn't interesting to him. I think this is where Shakespeare's sonnet 129 uh, comes into play, one of Shakespeare's greatest sonnets. The expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action, and till action lust is perjured, murderous bloody full of blame savage extreme rude cruel not to trust Enjoyed no sooner, but despised straight past reason hunted and no sooner had past reason hated as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad mad in pursuit and in possession so had having and in quest to have extreme a bliss in proof and proved a very woe before a joy proposed behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well, to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Now Biff has had some exposure to that truth. He certainly hasn't had Shakespeare's full uh, encounter with it, but he's had some exposure to that truth. And he's not in the mood for the lie, as happy is.